you for joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Richard Lissack, QC, a silk at Fountain Court Chambers. Today's episode is a recording of a virtual panel discussion we hosted in October 2021 on the topic of UK corporate criminal liability. Joining me in the discussion were fellow members of Fountain Court's commercial crime group, Robin Barclay QC, Eleanor Davison, and Robin Loof. I provide a more detailed introduction to our speakers during the session, so I won't repeat myself now, but I was grateful to them for joining me in such an interesting discussion. Over the summer of 2021, the Law Commission consulted a range of stakeholders on options for governmental reform to UK corporate criminality, so the law is fit for the modern business world. During this panel discussion, we spoke about the need for reform and themes arising during the consultation. We also discussed the new failure to prevent fraud offence, what the UK can learn from overseas jurisdictions, proportionality, and the cost of compliance and the impact on both global investigations and deferred prosecution agreements. Once again, thank you to my fellow speakers for joining me. What I felt was a thought-provoking discussion. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Can I just um, welcome you all? I'm Richard Lissac, QC at Fountain Court, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this discussion on UK corporate criminal liability and the case for reform through the Law Commission's consultation that is uh, extant at the moment. I'm going to make a few introductory observations to set the scene for today's discussion, which we hope very much that you will play a full part in. The overarching question is whether there is a need for reform at all. The Law Commission consultation is expressed to be a search for an appropriate principled basis for attributing criminal liability for activities undertaken by non-natural persons, which is a bit of a mouthful for saying fixing companies with responsibility in crime. But of course, it begs two anterior questions. First, should we be searching for ways of establishing criminal liability against something which, as Lord Hoffman observed in Meridian, does not exist? And secondly, if we should, what is wrong with the doctrines presently in place? So the doctrine of identification, vicarious liability, delegation, regulating uh, enforcement, and strict liability. The debate raises numerous legal, conceptual, and practical issues. And many of those arguments can be run both ways. So, for example, is a quasi-administrative approach typical of some of our European colleagues through the lens of regulation, which achieves the same outcome as criminal prosecution, the best way forward? Robin Barclay uh, will be addressing that. What is the purpose of criminal law in this context? Something that Robin Luth will look at, I'm sure. And does the prosecution of companies complicate the case against individuals? Something Ella Davidson will deal with when looking at DPAs and allied procedures. And what's the point? when you're dealing with historic conduct 
every time by definition, where often corporate body A 2021 bears no relation to corporate body A 2016, 17 or 18 when the alleged offending is committed. To help us with these issues, I'm delighted to be able to introduce you to three leading members of the commercial crime group at Fountain Court. Robin Barclay took silk in 2020 and practices in commercial, criminal, financial services and public law. His practice is almost exclusively international and multi-jurisdictional and his expertise spans disputes from investigations before commercial court and chancery division, the Crown Court, the Administrative Court, and a range of different regulatory and disciplinary tribunals in the UK and offshore, including the FCA here in the UK. His practice traverses very different legal and procedural spheres, and he's used by a range of corporate individuals for high-value, high-stake commercial litigation and advice. The most recent edition of the directories is rightly glowing of his qualities. Eleanor Davison is a leading junior in cross-border fraud, money laundering, corruption, and financial services law. She advises government at the highest level, state and private enforcement agencies, listed companies, and senior executives in criminal and regulatory proceedings. She's listed in Who's Who's Legal as a future leader in investigations and is the appointed expert to the Bar Standards Board on anti-money laundering provisions. Robin Loof, who is a relatively new addition to the commercial crime group here at Fountain Court, and we are particularly delighted to welcome him to this, the first event of this sort with which he has spoken. Started his career at the bar in London's top criminal set and then spent eight years in the white-collar crime team of a leading US law firm before joining Fountain Court in June. He now represents and advises both companies and individuals facing criminal and regulatory issues in England and abroad. As a French qualified lawyer, he continues to be able to practice seamlessly across the channel. And we're pleased to welcome him. And I'm delighted to be able to share this virtual platform with Robin, Robin and Ella. So I'm going to turn, first of all, if I may, to Robin Barclay QC on the critical intersection of criminality and regulatory infraction. Robin. Thank you very much for that introduction, Richard. One of the key themes and questions posed by the Law Commission Consultation and Review was whether to introduce a new failure to prevent economic crime offence, such as relating to fraud or money laundering, and thereby extending the negligence-based failure to prevent model of corporate criminal liability beyond bribery and tax evasion. The key takeaways from the review were as follows. I'm just starting with the case for reform. Firstly, and there's really six points. Firstly, that something has to be done due to the sheer scale of economic crime in the UK. A third of all reported conduct is fraud related, but only 3% of it leads to prosecution. 
Prosecutors therefore need more tools in the public interest. Secondly, that the failure to prevent model has been around for about 10 years now, post the Bribery Act, coming into force in July 2011. And there is a gap in the law that a new failure to prevent all economic crimes will fill that gap and provide coherence and consistency in this vital area. Thirdly, that the new offence could be crafted in such a way that the offence is only committed if the underlying fraud or economic crime is intended to benefit or does benefit the company, like the Section 7 Bribery Act offence. And like bribery, broad, clear and useful guidance from the MOJ should be simple to produce. And if a company puts in place adequate or reasonable anti-fraud or anti-money laundering procedures proportionate to the risks it faces, it has nothing to fear anyway and will avoid prosecution. Fourthly, that it will help raise governance standards inside all sizes of companies from top to bottom, just like the Bribery Act guidance encourages, by requiring corporates to identify, combat, monitor and deter economic crime by their directors, staff and third-party suppliers and agents, by requiring companies to invest in anti-fraud and further anti-money laundering risk assessments, policies, procedures and controls, training and ongoing monitoring. Fifthly, that as many companies have extensive ABC, AML and anti-fraud policies and procedures already, common sense suggests that the cost of introducing extra compliance measures to comply with the new offence will be negligible and not incur any unjustified financial burden on companies. And in any event, poorly run companies need to raise their game. And sixthly, the identification principle is antiquated and hugely challenging for prosecutors seeking to bring economic crime cases that will stand up to scrutiny against large companies. And a new failure to prevent offence will lower the bar for prosecutors fit for the modern era and redress the current imbalance that it's easier to prosecute a small company than a large one. Against that, the case against reform really is as follows. And again, there's five or six main points. Firstly, that fraud and bribery are fundamentally different beasts and require different approaches from law enforcement and governments. In contrast, to the global campaign to combat bribery and tax evasion and anti-money laundering, which has required governments to take positive legislative action to ensure corporates play their part in the different campaigns. No similar pressure exists in relation to fraud, where in the main, A, companies tend to be the victims rather than perpetrators of fraud. B, the civil law provides ample and sufficient remedies for victims to recover their losses. And our criminal law generally encourages victims to seek compensation from civil, not criminal courts. The gap in the law in this area is therefore justified. Secondly, the counter-argument is that instead of leading to a greater number of corporate prosecutions, a new failure to prevent offence will lead to the reverse and facilitate the avoidance of prosecution. And one only has to look at the volume of DPAs that have led to settlements and the avoidance of prosecution versus the volume of Section 7 prosecutions under the Bribery Act for that point to be underscored. Thirdly, that as the majority of companies in the UK are small, medium enterprises, we struggle to remain going concerned from time time to time, 
Why should they be made to bear the legal and financial burden of complying with a new law whose real target is larger companies? Fourthly, that there is nothing wrong with the identification principle. This rightly requires a careful and informed assessment who was actually acting on behalf of the company at the time of a suspected crime and whether their actions fell within the express or implied scope of the authority given to them or not. The prosecutors find it challenging to build a case that a certain individual or individuals were acting as the company at the time of a suspected crime suggests either that A, as a matter of fact, the individual's actions actually fell outside the scope of the authority given to them and no corporate crime was committed. Or B, the prosecutors are insufficiently skilled in the workings and governance of large companies and fail to identify how precisely a company is set up, how it discharges its different activities, and whether an individual's actions actually fell within or outside the scope of the authority given to them. And the fifth argument against is that to target the current imbalance regarding larger companies is in practice misguided because they've already invested heavily in ensuring that they have adequate or reasonable procedures, policies and controls to combat economic crime, meaning the current imbalance will persist. Now, for my part, I think the case against reform succeeds overall. I'm not convinced that the scale of economic crime will be reduced by introducing a new corporate offence. That companies tend to be victims rather than perpetrators. If they cause economic loss, their victims can do and seek redress through the civil sphere and courts. We all know that. Bribery and tax evasion are specific types of economic crime. And to my mind, the gap in the law can be justified. As to governance, well-run or well-capitalised organisations do indeed already invest in anti-graft and anti-fraud policies and procedures and trainings. And I don't consider a new failure to prevent offence will suddenly make poor companies sit up and listen and change. As to cost, again, larger organisations tend to have in place a raft of controls to combat economic crime. And so the burden of adapting to the new regime to make your business comply will in all probability fall more heavily on small and medium enterprises. As for the identification principle, it should remain, in my view. If there really is a case that a company has committed a substantive economic crime because the individual who committed it was expressly or impliedly authorised to do so on behalf of the company, then that should be prosecuted. And if prosecutors need to skill up, then they should do so in the public interest. What I think the consultation has really highlighted, however, is that the failure to prevent bribery offence has led to an avoidance of prosecution in most cases. The Petrofac case recently is obviously runs counter to that. Rather than an increase in prosecutions, a non-conviction-based DPA and a process and outcome that resembles what occurs in certain regulatory spheres. And as such, the question arises as to whether corporate negligence of economic crime should be dealt with, the, with by the criminal process at all, or whether it should be hived off completely to a regulatory regime. And that leads to the next topic, which was raised by the Law Commission in relation to Principle 3 of the FCA regulations, whereby firms regulated by the FCA have a mandatory duty to take reasonable care to organise and control their affairs reasonably and effectively with adequate risk management systems. And during the Commission's 
panel sessions, the question was raised as to whether if this is really what a new failure to prevent economic crime regime is aimed at, then shouldn't they be dealt with through regulatory proceedings, not criminal? Again, the case four falls into a number of bullet points. Firstly, that the DPA process and corporate sentencing guidelines resemble the FCA enforcement process, in that once either agency has a sufficiently good understanding of the facts, it may engage with the company under investigation with a view to negotiating a settlement, and if so, the appropriate penalties are then calculated using a very similar model across the FCA and DPA and sentencing guidelines documents. Secondly, what the Law Commission Review has also quite rightly asked is, should the FCA model be extended to cover the new failure to prevent arena? That begs the further question of what would such a regime for the CPS, SFO and corporates look like? Now, I'll take a stab. In summary, this could be the application of the Code for Crown Prosecutors or the lower DPA test of reasonable suspicion by the prosecutor to determine whether a corporate is guilty or not of the failure to prevent offence. And if so, the appropriate sanction from a menu including all the classic ones that we're all familiar with in this area, disgorgement, confiscating any corporate benefit, or paying compensation to victims in a, on occasion, as well as fines, and taking remedial measures and or giving undertakings to do so, as well as periods of monitoring suspension or prohibition, etc., based on an assessment of the seriousness of the corporate crime in terms of its impact, harm and motivation, and the nature, size and complexity of the company. Having made those determinations, the CPS or SFO would then serve its determination on the company it's been investigating in the form of a warning or minded to notice with a view to reaching a swift and cost-effective resolution by way of negotiation which affords the company the right to make representations in response and possibly a sizable early discount. And if no settlement can be reached, the formal decision notice is then issued by the CPS or SFO, which the company has the right to refer to an independent tribunal as opposed to a court for hearing and determination, where the requirements of the ECHR and other such rights and protections are fully respected and affords a right of appeal to a court. Now, Aspects of such a scheme have been used for many years across the criminal regulatory sphere by the FCA in relation to market abuse and other financial crime and regulatory offences, by the FCA and HMRC in connection with breaches of money laundering regulations, by the FRC regarding breaches of its accountants, auditors and actuary schemes. And whilst no scheme can ever be perfect, and party cases in particular can throw up complexities, such a scheme would firstly carry much the same financial burden to companies regarding the cost of compliance, investigation and sanction as the current criminal regime, but avoid the stigma attached to criminal investigation. Secondly, fill the perceived gap and create a consistent process for the enforcement of negligent-based corporate economic crimes and other corporate systems failures. Thirdly, accommodate all types of economic crime by companies and all kinds of sizes of companies as the nature and the size of the company and the issue of proportionality would all be factored in to the assessment of each case. Gain the same traction in terms of improving corporate ethics and behaviour if the publicity and guidance mirrored that of the Market Abuse Regime and Bribery Act and create the same mutual benefits to prosecutors and companies as the FCA scheme by incentivising early settlement. 
The case against such a scheme and, and hiving off the failure to prevent a negligence-based economic crimes into the regulatory sphere is, again, you know, multifaceted. But firstly, primarily, the, the CPS and SFO are crime fighters, not regulators, and work in the criminal, not regulatory sphere. Secondly, that neither the CPS nor the SFO have scope in their budgets to embrace such a new change. Thirdly, the regulatory process can often be protracted. Fourthly, the current judge-led process of DPAs works well, and who would qualify anyway to sit on a tribunal? Fifthly, the stigma attached to regulatory investigation is not so different to a criminal investigation. And sixthly, it would create a two-tier system where companies would be perceived to be treated more leniently compared to individuals under criminal investigation. It's an interesting balancing exercise, once again, but for my part, I think the case for extending the FCA enforcement model to all negligence-based economic crimes holds some real force. That the CPS and SFO crime fighters is not being said in relation to extending their remit to prosecute the new failure to prevent offence. And in any event, each of them has the power to bring and it is experienced in mounting certain civil proceedings as well as criminal. That the CPS don't have the financial capacity to start doing this sort of work is unlikely to be said if they start prosecuting the new offence. That cases could be drawn out? Well, of course, every case differs. But one only has to look at how long serious criminal fraud investigations take in England and at the backlog of cases in the criminal courts at the moment to see that the public interest could justify trying something swifter than the current arrangement. As for the two-tier system, well, shouldn't the aim of a prosecutor be a quick corporate settlement where it's appropriate to enable it to focus its resources on individuals? So th those are the key takeaways, and those are my thoughts on those two topics. Thank you, Robin. Can, can I just ask, ask you whether you have any uh, thoughts on this? One of the things that I know Ella will be dealing with in a little while is the, the interaction within the criminal system of a deferred prosecution agreement for a corporate and where that leaves the individual who may be the DMW, Director Mind and Will, of the corporate entity. And we'll look at this, I think, through the lens of some of the infamous examples of cases that have been settled against the corporate and collapsed against the individuals. How it would, do you think, individuals' rights would be protected or individuals held to account under a reg an extended regulatory regime for companies? And I think just as current civil, parallel civil and criminal proceedings, as well as regulatory proceedings, manage these sorts of cases, each scheme facilitates and certainly um, protects due process rights. And a company's and any third party rights and interests can adequately be protected because by hiving off the corporate proceedings, as I see it, from the prosecution of individuals, steps could be taken as they currently are across the criminal, civil and regulatory spheres by both the prosecuting bodies and or um, tribunal, uh, tribunals hearing the, the proceedings and or judges to manage and protect any serious risk of injustice that might be um, perceived to arise to individuals through stays of the different proceedings, if need be, reporting restrictions and other measures that we're all familiar with, such as anonymity orders, etc. And then 
Secondly, as to the use of, say, evidence obtained in the regulatory severe in any subsequent prosecution of individuals, that, again, can be managed in the way it's managed currently through the provision of adequate safeguards, such as the privilege against self-incrimination and Section 78 pays, and or possibly a new statutory default prohibiting the admissibility of witness statements and oral testimony given in regulatory proceedings other than in exceptional circumstances in any subsequent criminal prosecution. Interesting. And I don't know if you have a view on this. I do. I mean, I agree with with Robin that the current regime could be rolled across so you, you can well see the Section 393 FISMA safeguards that are in place that afford individuals who are the subject of prejudicial criticism in a notice, third-party rights in relation to that notice to make representation and to see the evidence underlying that notice. And of course, those rights which which bite from the date of publication, as, as Robin says, it may be that in some cases notices can't be published um, until uh, a view has been taken on whether or not individuals should be pursued. Yeah. Before I come to you, Robin Luth, for your, your reaction on this, one thought is this, that the problem with any shift of corporate liability away from the criminal arena is the eponymous Daily Mail reader's reaction to companies being seen to, quote, get away with it. We probably all have our views on whether that should drive uh, reform of the law. But do you see that, Robin Barclay, before I come to you, Robin Lou, Robin Barclay is being a blocker to some form of more the streamlined modern regulatory regime, or do you think it is completely irrelevant to the whole debate? I think it's relevant because people make it relevant at the moment in the sense that we work in a paradigm where it matters. And being the subject of a criminal investigation, whether you're an individual or a company, has a stigma attached to it. And in order to avoid any such stigma, Companies go out of their way to invest so heavily in compliance programs. That is part of what they do. However, I think there are two things. One, if it's a negligence-based liability, then for reasons of consistency, it seems to me that it's better, more coherent, to acknowledge that from the outset and how it's dealt with by the criminal courts in any event for companies and put it all into one basket, so to speak. And secondly, that I think, the sti- as I said in, re- in relation to the stigma attached to regulatory investigations, mm. I don't think the public may really differentiate between um, whether it's the SFO or the, SF or the FCA bringing a criminal prosecution or bringing a regulatory investigation or enforcement action. What, what matters is, is, has justice been done in the sense that where sanction is appropriate that those who, are, who need to be brought to account are brought to account? And what is the size of, of the fine or the punishment or the penalty? That's what really matters. And I think so. So I think we could entertain a paradigm shift whereby corporate criminal liability dealt within a regulatory arena it is deemed to be wholly acceptable. And also when you get the benefit, hopefully, of um, early settlement so that, so that prosecutors can really focus on individuals. Robin, I don't know whether you have a view. I do, unsurprisingly. Part of me feels that this is, part of this debate I find slightly frustrating because uh, there is a, 
an air of displacement activity on this debate, because I think, as we all agree, and I think we've touched upon, and this goes back to the data mail reader that you made reference to, Richard, at the heart of this problem is that corporate enforcement, whether that be uh, criminal or regulatory, is under-resourced. And discussing, effectively trying to resolve what is a resourcing and organizational problem with reform to the substance um, is arguably the wrong way to go about these things. Now, having said that, I take a slightly different view to, to Robin. I do think there is a case for reforming the substance of the law, not least because one of the characteristics of English corporate criminal liability is that it's such a probably messy system. Because we have such a restricted general regime, it's forced us, and, and Robin touched upon this, it's forced us to adopt um, derogatory regime for specific areas where we feel that it's that corporate enforcement isn't quite working. So bribery and, and tax avoidance is one thing, but we have huge swathes of um, health and safety, environmental legislation where corporate criminal liability works differently. So I think a reform to the general regime would effectively arguably prevent the need to have all these sectoral derogatory regimes that, that, that work in, in specific ways. Interesting. One thing that I, I just like to pick up on, that uh, Robin Barclay, with you, that arises really from what Robin Oof was saying and my reference rather discourteously, perhaps the Daily Mail, but everyone knows what I mean, I'm sure, is this. What is the true purpose of prosecuting a company? The true purpose is that it is a legal person, isn't it? And therefore, if a legal person is deemed to have contravened the criminal law, then just like a human person, who is another form of legal person, then they should be held accountable for it. I think that's the way it works. Yeah, I, I, I ask that particularly because, as you, as you and everybody else, I'm sure, knows, that in the Law Commission paper, one of the issues that they're looking at, and it's uh, in the list of issues in Chapter 10 of their consultation paper, is consent, connive, and neglect provisions, Mm. secondary liability for directors, officers, and others operating as similar persons, shadow directors, and and so forth. Uh, And that, of course, is in the context of it being the other way around, where the corporate has committed an offence, consented to, connived at, or driven towards neglect of an officer. I just wonder if you have any view on how that sits comfortably or otherwise, alongside the intersection of criminality and regulatory breaches that you've been addressing? Um, Well, I I think in relation to that point, firstly, that language is really from the 19th century. Because when you go back to the original legislation that actually brought in those sorts of provisions, that is the genesis of it. And so... But And of course, as people rightly identify now, things have moved on. And whereas companies used to be maybe small, much smaller beasts in the 19th century, and so it was appropriate because it was so, so much easier to attribute corporate liability from human action, that's not necessarily the case in certain larger organisations now. How does it sit in the modern world? I think that you can, you can still identify that, of course, if, I think, obviously, it depends on the company, but if a, and this is sort of fairly standard law, that 
if a there's got to be a separate person that the company is itself would itself be liable with. So I don't think that that's really a um, something that should really trouble the identification principle there. I mean, I, I ask in particular because there is a, a reserve judgment in a judicial review I was doing for a few days last week uh, concerning corporate and then individual liability under the Trade Union Labor Relations Consolidation Act, Section 194, which I don't suppose is a hot topic for anyone in this panel because there's only been one prosecution in 40-something years. And this is the second, and this is the first time a, a senior court has had to go, consider the ingredients, where you have the odd state of affairs that it is accepted that the doctrine of identification is required to fix the corporate entity with liability. And then you have the secondary liability of the director off the back of it. But you have a strange circularity because the self-same person who is said to be the company for the purpose of fixing the corporation with liability is prosecuted additionally for consenting to, conniving at, or attributing by his own neglect to his own breach. Now, I'm sure there's that the court will find an easy way around this, but it, it's an, I think it's uncomfortable. And I know this is something the Law Commission are also concerned with. How on earth can somebody honestly be said in this day and age to consent to or connive at their own conduct when it is deliberate? Anyway, I'm going to move us on, if I may, with thanks to you for, for that, to you, Robin Loof, uh, to look at the international dimension here and the lessons that we can learn from overseas jurisdictions, and perhaps also rolling in proportionality and the cost of compliance. Thanks, Richard. Uh, so what I found interesting about the Law Commission's approach to comparative law in this project is that it extended it beyond the common law world. Now, I'll be looking in particular at France and Italy, but you see that the Law Commission uh, paper also covers jurisdictions like Germany. And these countries are very close to us in, in every way, but they're not traditionally natural comparators for English law reform purposes. And there are, to my mind, there are three perspectives to bear in mind when looking at foreign experiences with corporate liability for criminal offences. And I, I use that term of phrase advisedly for reasons which I hope become clear. And the first, and perhaps most obvious, um, is that there may well be things that we can learn from, um, from other jurisdictions. Um, but second, and from a, a law reform perspective in particular, it is interesting to ask ourselves why it is that the question of corporate liability for criminal offending is less and sometimes far less contentious in other jurisdictions than it is here. And here, just sort of brief, brief comment, uh, it seems to me that the more effective corporate enforcement is perceived to be, the less pressure there is to reform corporate criminal liability rules. And so, again, we're coming back to this point that part of this debate is displacement for the fact that we don't dedicate enough resources to, to the criminal justice system, but in particular the, the um, corporate, corporate enforcement. And the third and final perspective is that because many companies today operate across borders, transactions which then become the subject of criminal proceedings will often involve several jurisdictions. And so it's important whether or not we decide to adopt a system that's already in existence somewhere in the world, we need at least to bear in mind the practical impact for businesses of the extent to which our laws on corporate criminal liability diverge from those of our closest economic partners. So 
With that in mind, what I thought I'd do is I'll speak a little bit more in detail about Italy and France, not only in relation to the substance of the law, but also what lessons then we could learn from them potentially in relation to enforcing compliance and also uh, compliance burdens placed on companies. So look first at Italy. First thing to note is that technically Italy doesn't have corporate criminal liability. Since 2001, there is a legislative decree, just known generally by its, by its number, 231, um, which uh, instituted a system of corporate administrative liability for criminal offences. If offences are committed on behalf of a company, either by managers with decisional autonomy or alternatively by persons supervised by such managers, then the um, legal entity can be held responsible. And this responsibility, this administrative liability, is enforced by prosecutors in the criminal court. So, you know, the way it looks, uh, the difference with criminal liability is perhaps not that great to the company effectively sitting at the dock next to the individuals who will be criminally prosecuted. Structurally, then, this decree 231 sets out a long list of offences to which it applies. We'll find there fraud, market abuse, corruption, but also things like environmental offences, corporate manslaughter, health and safety offences, etc. And this list of offences has been added to on various occasions. And so, again, coming back to this point I made earlier, contrary to the system we have in England, we effectively have in Italy a freestanding code of corporate liability for criminal offences, which then companies could look at and, and, and appreciate quickly, get an overview of what it is that applies to them. So from an organizational perspective, companies in Italy can escape liability if the offenses were committed despite the existence of a compliance framework. And the law, this decree, provides a fair bit of detail on how these um, compliance frameworks should look. Um, and the way this defense works is modulated in two ways. So first, in order to escape liability for offences committed by managers, and here I have to sort of somewhat translate the Italian function into, into English legal, legal terminology, the decree places the legal burden of proof on the company where it is merely evidential in relation to alleged offending by subordinates. And in addition, uh, the decree also distinguishes between offences committed by uh, managers and those committed by subordinates in that the requirements on the sophistication, as it were, of the framework um, and the manner in which it operated at the time of the offending are more onerous for alleged offending by managers than they for subordinates. And the second important way in which 231 modulates uh, the defense, the compliance defense, as it were, for Italian companies is that the requirements, the legal requirements of the compliance framework are legally less onerous for small companies. And I think, you know, we can all see the similarities between uh, the way the Italian system operates and, and, and what a potential extended failure to prevent system could look. And given the momentum that there appears to be behind an expansion of the failure to prevent model, I think the Italian model, or the Italian system is one that is interesting to look at. And I think we'll come back to this after I've um, gone through the French system. And the French system is interesting, particularly because it's superficially similar to ours. So Article 1212 of the French Criminal Code provides for general criminal liability for corporate entities for criminal acts committed on their behalf by, as the law says, their organs or representatives. And admittedly, this is not the same. It's clearly a conceptual relative 
to put it that way, of the English directly minded will. But French courts have applied this provision in a way which makes it a lot more flexible than the English courts have approached the directly minded will. And so in practice, French corporate criminal liability is wider. And, and again, this is a little bit by sort of squeezing, uh, squeezing sort of English concepts onto, onto the French system. But I thought it would be interesting to highlight how French courts have approached three issues which have very much contributed to the narrowness of the directly minded will system in, in England. And the first of these is just the basic rule of attribution. So as pretty clear, um, there are two routes in, in French law to corporate liability. So either you can pin the offending on a senior enough manager, in which case it's pretty straightforward. And you know, there's a pretty high profile example of that recently with the UBS case, where uh, the Swiss bank was convicted of unlawful marketing of financial services and money laundering on the basis of the activities of very senior managers of its private banking division. The company was then convicted alongside a, 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 a number of those managers. I should add that the appeal is pending and that we currently expect the French Court or the, the Paris Court of Appeal to issue its, its uh, ruling in December uh, of this year. But alternatively, and this I think is perhaps more interesting, in France, you can seek to ascribe corporate responsibility through a collective body, so an organ, um, as, as the law puts it, of the company. And the where it gets interesting here is we're looking at the approach that they take to the mental element because the the article in the criminal code which follows the one on corporate criminal responsibility enshrines the principle that serious offenses require intention and that's by no means disapplied for companies and whilst to my knowledge the french supreme court has not made any statements of principle on on how this works what appears from the cases is that in the absence of evidence of intention or knowledge on behalf of one or several individual members of an organ, um, French courts will acquit the company, and there is some recent Supreme Court authority on this. But what also appears relatively clear is that there is no requirement to show that a majority of the members of a collegiate body which took a relevant decision had the requisite intention or knowledge. So moving on then to the second issue, um, which I think is an interesting difference between the French court's approach and the ones in, in England, is the issue of aggregation. Because as we know, our Court of Appeal um, has made it clear that you can't aggregate the knowledge of several directing minds in order to make up one corporate mens rea. And again, we don't have a clear statement of principle from the French Supreme Court, but it appears that there is an element of aggregation that is possible. And so I'm not going to go into detail here because it's quite complicated, obviously, but there is a recent judgment relating to Alcatel um, in the Supreme Court from June of this year relating to bribery in Costa Rica, very historic. And that's, again, to your point, Richard, you know, these things tend to, be, um, tend to be very old. But here, the Supreme Court approved the conviction of the company where liability of the group company, um, the Alcatel group company, can best be explained on the basis of an aggregation of knowledge between a number of representatives as well as a collegiate body. So finally, and again, we've, we've touched upon this in the English context, um, delegation. So in France, um, where decisions are made either further down the corporate hierarchy or even elsewhere um, in a corporate group, judges can look for delegation from the senior levels of the company to those responsible for the, for the conduct itself. 
And here, delegation is re relatively flexible. It can be both legal and factual. And again, this Alcatel case is a good example because here the Supreme Court approved an approach which involved looking at Alcatel's organizational structure. So we're looking at business lines and sales regions rather than the corporate structure. And on this basis, it was found that there had been factual delegation from the group company to the head of a relevant region who in structural terms was the employee of a Spanish subsidiary and two directors of the Costa Rican subsidiary, as well as to the risk assessment committee, which approved the whole arrangement. And this was a sort of a group transversal body. So on these three issues, which have effectively been read very narrowly in the English context, we can see that the French courts have taken a much more flexible approach. And so made the general regime arguably more adaptable than the, than the, than the general regime that we have um, in England. The French approach to compliance is also worth a brief mention because it's a little bit similar to uh, the system under the Bribery Act, but it was brought in, in, a, in a, with it from a different perspective. So in 2016, in late 2016, the Sapin II Act was uh, brought into force and it imposed com on companies with more than 500 staff and over 100 million euro in turnover, an obligation, uh, so freestanding obligation to put in place anti-corruption compliance programs, satisfying a number of criteria that the law sets out. And this law also created an administrative agency, uh, the Anti-Corruption Agency or AFA, to enforce this freestanding compliance obligation. And the AFA has two functions. It conducts audits of companies in scope of the law, and if necessary, they bring administrative enforcement action against companies and potentially chairpersons and CEOs. And the second function is that it has that it provides advice uh, and so it issues general guidelines, but it also responds to questions that are submitted to it by, by individual companies and, and public entities as to how they should or how they can organize their, uh, their anti-corruption policies. And this then leads into this sort of more general issue around compliance and compliance burdens. And I think looking at what the, we're likely to see when the Law Commission presents its options paper, from my perspective, I think it's unlikely that we will have a strong recommendation, for instance, of adopting the US system of vicarious liability. And this is not least because it doesn't incorporate an, an express incentive to improve compliance frameworks. I mean, we saw that the Bribery Act 2010 caused a sea change in how companies approach anti-bribery compliance. As I already mentioned, it was something very similar that happened in France when they adopted the Sapin II Act in 2016-2017. And so I think we can say that express incentives or mandates to introduce strong compliance frameworks are effective at improving corporate systems and controls. But you know, as Robin's already mentioned, this is fine for large or very large companies with deep pockets. But what about you know the smaller medium medium enterprises with less financial firepower? And here, sort of looking at the UK, in theory already, the compliance burden should fall differently on companies according to the size and the nature of their operations. So proportionality is already a factor when assessing the adequacy of a compliance framework. But in legal terms, the words adequate, if we're looking at the Bribery Act, or reasonable, if we're looking at the Criminal Finances Act, do a lot of heavy lifting. 
And I think there is a good case for saying that there is insufficient guidance out there, particularly for small and medium enterprises, to enable them to make the necessary judgment calls. And if we look, for instance, at Italy, uh, you know, there is clearly scope for making the law more precise on what we really mean by an adequate, reasonable compliance framework and what is required of companies of different sizes. Another argument that's often made is that sort of the extension, if we're looking at failure to prevent, that this will result in a massive increase in the compliance burden. I think this should probably worth nuancing a bit. I think the Bribery Act experience, if you put it that way, has made us think of compliance sort of in, in material silos. And if we imagine compliance being a wall, uh, the reason would be that, you know, anti-corruption compliance is one brick to which we would need to add, you know, another brick of equal size representing anti-fraud compliance and another brick of equal size equally anti-fraud accounting, et cetera. And I think in France, there's a similar sort of experience due to the Subhan 2 Act focus on anti-bribery compliance. But I think, Robin, as you already said, in reality, that's not how it works or how it should work. Companies do approach compliance, and they often, you know, as a holistically, you know, looking at financial crime compliance, for instance, in the regulated sector. Um, it's certainly a a transversal approach to to compliance generally. Having said all that, there is obviously a risk, or I think it's it's fair to say that it's generally the case that if there is an extension of failure to prevent there would be additional costs, sometimes in the form of significant threshold effects. And I'll you know, finish perhaps on this. And I think, for instance, I can imagine that more and smaller companies may find themselves having, for instance, to hire a full-time compliance officer, whereas previously it might, they might have found it sufficient to, for that function to be merged with, for instance, the head of legal. Thank you very much indeed. I've got some several questions here, but I'd just like to, before I come to those, ask this. Piggybacking off your observations about aggregation, which are very interesting, given I made an early attempt in 1997 to persuade the Court of Appeal that aggregation should fly and was told I should fly um, <laughs> straight out to the door in one of the train crash Attorney General's references that I did. But there is a, a gap in the argument between everything's fine, leave it as it is, and scrap it and let's have a failure to prevent. I'd just like to know your views, if you have them, Robin or Ella or Robin, on the extent to which the doctrine of identification is fine, so long as you modernise it by reference to two recognitions. One, that in companies, powers and duties are delegated. And two, decisions are made collectively. And so whether the doctrine stands as a medium for fixing corporations of liability, but its underpinning principles are adapted so as to import, a la France, the aggregation doctrine into English law and also to cater for delegation as well, which I think are, are, are two fundamental changes that could work. I'm but interested in your views. And Ella, I don't know whether you have a view on that. I do have a view on that. I mean, as to delegation, um, it is a route to corporate liability through delegation already. But I think, as the Barclays case pointed out, if the delegation is limited in scope, then, in fact, a court may find that the the apparent delegatee was not, not given authority to carry out the act. And so they may not amount to the directing mind and will. And so I suppose with the delegation route as it, as it currently is, 
there's a lot of power in the hands of a company to craft the scope of its delegation very carefully to make sure that the responsibility doesn't fall to any particular individual and rests collectively with the committee. And that's where I think the aggregation point becomes a very interesting indeed, because I, I do think that the current directing mind and will route is not fit for purpose when it's laid onto a modern corporate. It just doesn't bear any relation to how we all know banks and other institutions actually take their decisions um, these days. So I suppose the question becomes then, if we were going to adopt some form of aggregation, what would it be? I'm going to be quite interested to hear from Robin about France, where I think he said that there was aggregation. There didn't have to be a majority of the particular committee. But I wonder where where that line is. How do you judge when you've got enough people of a, of a particular view who, who have sanctioned a particular decision to fix the, the corporate was liability. So, as I said, there haven't been sort of any statements of principle. I'm not sure if you ask a French judge whether this is how they think about this, whether it's in terms of aggregation. But um, it, what, what you're highlighting, and I'll, I'll try to answer the, sort of the substantive question, but what you're highlighting is that the difficulty here is that it's not very clear. And that, I think, would be the difficulty when you... Um, try to refashion by, through statute, the identification problem is that it's difficult then for companies to predict when effectively they will trigger trigger their liability. Yeah. And I think that is certainly the case in France. In terms of aggregation, in terms of fixing um, knowledge within, a, within an organ and within a collective body, it seems that it would potentially be enough for one or two of the members of a of an organ which took a decision which effectively leads to a criminal offence being committed, having the requisite knowledge. And so you don't actually need to have, as I said, you don't need to have a majority of the membership of that body that took a decision to be liable personally in order for the company then to be liable. And that would potentially solve one of the discussions that have arisen out of the out of the Barclays case, effectively, when you when you would, you know, what would happen when you know, the board is misled as to the purpose of, the, of a particular transaction and that knowledge is confined to one or two individuals on a, you know, for instance, a nine-body a nine panel. Can I ask a question, Richard, of you? I wonder, when you read the Law Commission uh, paper, what comes out very strongly is that what has happened in the case law is not what they were anticipating would happen. They felt that the Meridian line of attribution might, uh, might come to the fore but of course, Barclays appears to have put the brakes on that. Do you think there's any any merit in looking again at, at establishing Meridian as the way that corporate liability would be attached, thus giving courts more flexibility to, to fashion that special rule that is more tailored to the specific circumstances of the actus reus and the mens rea? I, I think the answer, to answer your question is yes. But I think the difficulty is this, that, uh, that as you know very well, our argument in Barclays was that Meridian was no more than a subset of or a development of the doctrine of identification applied mm. to a particular regulatory context. And as Mr Justice Jay, first instance, and then Lord Justice Davis on the SFO's challenge to our success in front of Jay, both ruled. Uh, it didn't take the SFO anywhere. And it would, I mean, the, on one view, the Barclays judgments are a retrenchment of the Tesco and Natras principles, yes. quite a conservative basis, consigning or, or putting Lord Hoffman's uh, speech in Meridian in its context, i.e., 
he was concerned with the, the, a corporate entity not being allowed to escape liability for what is exquisitely a corporate offence, merely because the person who was carrying out the conduct in question was lower down than might otherwise normally be the case for somebody fixing corporate with liability. And so I think that the, the trouble with using Meridian alone is that it doesn't truly fit quite a lot of broad criminal circumstances, as our argument anyway, which held sway twice, didn't really fit a broad a tableau of fraud act offences or other offences such as that. It's fine for regulatory stuff. It's fine for the, the securities issues that the court was, the Privy Council were there considering. I think it's difficult to read that across more broadly. And at one stage, the SFO were minded to argue that Meridian was the solution to all of their problems, but they they kind of veered off that. I suppose, to, um, I, I think to Robin Louvre's point about certainty with Meridian, a Meridian application, it would just be almost case by case. And there, so there wouldn't be any certainty for corporate as to how to conduct itself. Yeah, that, that's that's right. I mean, interestingly, in a, a, an FCA investigation, which I'm involved at the moment for a corporate defendant, uh, the law there that the FCA say applies in a regulatory context is Meridian. Yes, and one, one can see why, and uh, that that is that is perfectly uh, coherent without conceding the point or identifying the case. It, that may be a perfectly coherent position for them to take. Uh, but I think in crime, it's it's more difficult. I think we're just going to move on. Uh, I'll have to leave the questions about the Italian methods and French methods of corporate liability being fixed, Robin, to take up with you offline. Um, but I think if we move on to your piece, Ella, can we come on to global investigations and deferred prosecution agreements, please? Yes, and I'm conscious of the time, so I'll keep my observations and brief and to the point. Just in relation to deferred prosecution agreements um, and the issue of where the corporate criminal liability, what the impact is on deferred prosecution agreements um, is the first point I'm going to address. Um, So in the context of deferred prosecution agreements at the moment, the high threshold of establishing corporate criminal liability is, is a problem inherent in the regime. And that is because to enter a DPA, the prosecutor must satisfy the evidential test, the full code test, or be satisfied that there is at least a reasonable suspicion based on some admissible evidence that the company has um, committed the offence. So because of that threshold step where the prosecutor has had to have a really uh, good think about corporate criminal liability in relation to to some offences, it was expected by commentators that most DPAs would focus on the failure to prevent offences that we've talked about already, such as failure to prevent bribery and the criminal facilitation of tax evasion. Because in those offences, of course, the identification principle is not in play. They are strict liability uh, offences with the adequate procedures defence. So of the DPAs concluded so far, just three of them out of the soon to be 12 and 13 relate to fraud offences. And those are the the Tesco Stores Limited DPA, the the Serco uh, DPA and the G4S DPA. Of the latest clutch that we've seen in 2021, the AMEC DPA, as it's sometimes called or sometimes referred to as AFWELL by commentators, and the two 
DPAs that are as yet not in the public domain, but relate to offences contrary to, to the Bribery Act. So by far the majority of DPAs are in relation to offences where uh, the identification principles are not in play. But I should add as a caveat, in some of those where it's been the Section 7 offence, because the conduct is historic, much of some of it predates the Bribery Act there, there must have been some consideration of corporate liability principles and it hasn't been a barrier to settlement. I, I suppose the easiest example of where corporate liability has been dealt with within a DPA context is the Sarclad Limited case where it was a Section 7 offence, but the company also accepted primary liability in relation to conspiracies to corrupt and bribery. But Sarclad was, of course, a very small company, meaning that the directing mind and will was much easier to identify. And that picks up on a theme in the Law Commission report that, in fact, the directing mind and will regime might have a, a disproportionate impact on smaller companies because where there are fewer, far fewer directors, it's much easier for prosecutors to pin them with responsibility. So why does the doctrine of directing mind and will matter? Does it undermine the effectiveness of the DPA regime? Well, I, I think the concern is that for offences other than those failure to prevent offences, there's a lack of a credible threat of prosecution at the moment because proving identification is actually extremely difficult. And the Barclays case illustrates this point very neatly because it's when you overlay that re requirement to identify the directing mind and will onto a modern, complex corporate organisation where decision-making has been delegated in limited ways to specific subcommittees of the board, um, you can find yourself in a position that the senior executives, including the CEO and the CFO, do not amount to the directing mind and will in law. And that has quite a chilling effect on a prosecuting agency. Um, they will look at a case and think, my goodness me, are we ever going to get this over the line? And for the defence community, they will look at it and think, oh, they might not get this over the line. So where's the where's the incentive for us to enter a DPA? We might as well we might as well fight this. Now, of course, we all know that entering a DPA is not just a, a legal consideration for financial institutions. There are commercial uh, and reputational aspects. But if the failure to prevent model were to be extended, DPAs might suddenly look like a much more attractive prospect to firms because one avenue of being able to contest a criminal case by fighting on um, directing mind and will principles would, would fall away. And with the other considerations of reputational risk, risk of loss at trial, debarment, um, uh, and those matters, um, institutions might, might suddenly become much more pro uh, a DPA resolution. And in that context, I think that the, the most recent comments in the AMEC or AFWELL DPA of Lord Justice Edis are very interesting. He said in that judgment, I think it's the first time that I've seen this sort of language used in, in the context of financial crime, that although there was no obligation to self-report, and of course there's no legal obligation to report fraud to the police at all in this country, that they should have reported, not as a matter of legal duty, but as a matter of corporate, ethical corporate governance. And so he said that... Um, there is a moral duty on all citizens in this respect, which extends at least equally to corporations, and that the failure by the board in this case was deplorable. And I, so I think that that 
is a, is a rather interesting shift in tone. And I think it indicates that certainly from the judiciary's perspective, corporations should be engaging with financial crime and perhaps that they shouldn't be hived off to some sort of special regime where they're dealt with separately to individual defendants. And those comments, of course, reflect the observations that Lisa Osofsky, the director of the SFO, has been making for some time about the DPA regime and her objective uh, for that regime, which is to, quote, drive better corporate citizenship and to ensure that firms admit their fraud and corruption and turn their attention to So I I think those are the observations in relation to to DPAs. I'll certainly say something. (laughs) Ella, Ella, I just want to just ask you you this. Do Do you think that the DPA process is really a criminal process if you avoid prosecution? Or is it, as some have said during the Law Commission sessions, really quasi-criminal or or actually regulatory? So, I mean, it's an interesting question because, of course, when when a a DPA is offered, uh, criminal proceedings are initiated and then suspended, and it's only if the corporate complies with the terms of the DPA that the um, the case will be discontinued. But, of course, it doesn't result in a conviction. So it's an interesting hybrid. The other thing I, I would say about um, Edith's observations is that it, it borrows itself, I think, in many ways to sort of to some of the common law comments about defences to say breach of confidence, where um, you could, in the public interest, breach a confidence if it justified it. And I think that, it, and it was the, the, the sort of that, that sense of the citizen standing back and saying, actually, do you know what? I have a moral duty, a higher moral duty to, to report this and to mm. disclose this, this matter that has been told to me in secret or in confidence. And so I think it, it is a very interesting tension how perhaps that duty was more pressing, maybe up to about 30 years ago. But as we've evolved through, Big Bang and various other things of life has become more glo- you know, global, et cetera. Perhaps that, that sense of wider public duty has been slightly lost. So I, th- I think it's, although I, I know many people who are quite abhorrent, felt those, co- those observations were, my goodness me, is that the test now? Well, but, but I'm not having any of that. Um, actually, it's quite, an, again, it's a different paradigm shift. And I, I think it's a fascinating observation, as you say. And I, would, I wonder whether you'd like to help us with your views on uh, the impact on global investigations. And just conscious of the of the time, if you do that, then I've just got a, a few observations I'd like to make at the end, if that's convenient. Yeah. Uh, of course. I, mean, I, I suppose that the Athwell settlement shows that the trend that the SFO started in the Airbus DPA to engage with with uh, prosecutors and regulators around the world is is continuing apace. Mm-hmm. So in Afwell, I think touches on conduct in Nigeria um, and several other several other jurisdictions. And the um, director thanks the authorities in those places for their cooperation in in reaching a global settlement. So I, I see no signs of the global nature of these agreements slowing down. Yeah. One thing I'd be interested in your your view on is, is this, and I know that you are, are responsible for the GRR book on global investigations, so I ask you with, with, with that advert and hat on, and very fine it is too. But I just want to ask you this. Do, do you think 
that taking the cases you've just alluded to, perhaps as the as the springboard for answering this question, the, the ever-present problem that we all know faces corporates of uh, on an international investigation of how on earth do I arrive at a singular settlement? Or how does my admission in this jurisdiction affect my liability in that jurisdiction? Do you think that we're slowly feeling our way towards a solution to that? I think it's a it's still a really difficult question. And you obviously, when you're acting for multinational um, corporations, you have to think very carefully about how uh, admissions that you make over here are going to um, be received by authorities in other places. I think all, all that you can say is that as the prosecuting authority gets itself together to approach a corporate with a global settlement, it is therefore receptive to submissions from the corporate on the receiving end as to the global impact. So I, I suppose the, the, the two things go hand in hand, really. So the, the further the prosecutor presses on, the more open the door will be for recipients to make those make those sort of representations. But it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult network. And it's why volume two of the guide has around the world, <laughs> around the world tour. So you can make sure that you don't put your feet in it in the US while you're doing something over here. Well, I mean, the problem, as you know, is, is, is a very real one and affects clients that I expect everyone on this webinar has or has advised in the past uh, in respect of. And you reach a settlement in, say, Brazil, as I have in one case, where the settlement then has resonates through the US and the UK and Singapore in a way that could not really have been foreseen by the clients when they did it. But um, anyway... That's probably a wider debate for another day. I'd just like to perhaps wrap things up, if that's okay with everyone, by just making these observations. It's perfectly obvious from the compelling presentations that Robin, Ella and Robin have provided that the answer to the issues which are said to stalk corporate liability in UK criminal law are neither singular nor straightforward. And almost every one of the potential routes to change create a subset of issues all of their own. And I think there are a series of questions we've really got to ask ourselves as we move through this area of law. First, we have to ask ourselves, why are we bothering? Secondly, we have to ask ourselves, what are we seeking to achieve? Thirdly, we have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of the law in this area? Fourthly, what will change achieve? And fifthly, at what cost? And I think in fashioning an answer to some change to the doctrine of identification that is largely regarded as being, as was said earlier on, unfit for purpose as it stands, is not to be insular in our search for the answer. So whether we're looking for a quasi-administrative solution whether we look to Europe or whether we look to other jurisdictions more commonly affiliated to our system, whether we look within our own regime to the concepts of delegation, reminding ourselves that directing minded will only applies for the purpose of the activity in question. It's not some absolute to do with directors only. Or whether we look to aggregation, as Robin Luther was saying, there may well be answers that are less extreme than chucking out one problem only to replace it with another. To all of you, I'd like to say thank you very much indeed for joining us today. 
And I'm sure that we we all in the room, we'd all be cheering loudly the contributions from the three panellists. So we'll take that as read. And thank you very much for, for that. Three short points. One, we're very happy to pick up your questions separately. We are all at your disposal. If you have any specific questions that time or uh, uncharacteristic shyness has prevented you asking in the course of uh, this webinar, and I'm sorry we haven't asked all the questions that we might have been able to cover, you can ask us separately. Secondly, we'll be in touch regarding this, the recording of this webinar in case you want it uh, as a souvenir of the, of the day. And thirdly, many of you already do subscribe to the, this work group's Fountain Court quarterly newsletter, which has been extremely well received. If you don't have it already, it's described by a partner of a leading city firm, something he read from cover to cover, which is gratifying and maybe indicative of his reading material. But anyway, we'd be very pleased indeed to provide it to you. If you contact us, then we would be delighted to do that. But unless there are any last questions or last contributions, I'd like to suggest that with about five minutes to spare, we might bring this to a close with my thanks to all of you for attending and to Robin, Ella and Robin for their contributions. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So there you have it. An interesting discussion around the potential new shape of this fascinating area of law. Once again, I'm very grateful to Robin Barclay QC, Eleanor Davison and Robin Loof. And I hope our listeners enjoyed the discussion as much as we all did. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast. Mm-hmm.